Um, let's pray. God, we thank you that you're good. Lord, we thank you that your word is good. We thank you that uh, you have not left us or forsaken us. You, we thank you that even in the midst of depravity and brokenness and selfishness and the self-seeking of humanity, that you ultimately deliver justice. You ultimately, even if it doesn't feel like in the moment, you ultimately birth a hope in us that cannot be killed. You sometimes lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. But we are called to fix our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith. And so, Lord, this morning, as we come to your word, we just pray that we would fix our eyes on you that even in the brokenness that we see in the text today, that we would see the promise that is found in Jesus alone. In your precious name, amen. Um, we're going to be, if you, you grab your Bibles and you open to Judges chapter 19, it won't take you long to realize that Judges 19 and 20 is two of the worst passages of the entire Bible. I was talking with a, a friend who uh, had this, he was in more in a traditional context, and he was saying he was going to preach on this, and so he had a group of readers in his church who would traditionally get up and read, and the first three men that saw the passages refused. They were like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not reading that. The, the fourth even felt that he needed to read before he read uh, he needed to pray before he read the passage, which is not common tradition. Because what we read in these passages is depraved. I do want to put it out there because this might affect you in some way that makes you, it that may horrify you deeply. And it should. It horrifies Israel. There is rape, there is death. There is cowardice, there is oppression, there is justification of the perpetrator rather than protection of the innocent. This is not good. But this is actually life. On one level or another, we're all the abuser. We are all the sinner. I know it's scary. Maybe it's not the depth of this, but Scripture is clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For many of us, of course, here, as I read through this text, this may actually trigger some things in you because you've been the recipient of abuse, of brokenness, of the cowardice of another, of being scapegoated even, whatever it may be. And so I do want to set the tone in one sense because I want us to realize that in the midst of God's plan to bring us home into a place of perfect communion with Him and with people is sometimes devastating deserts and destruction. The beginning of Genesis reminds us that when sin came into the equation, Adam and Eve themselves were expelled from the garden. They were put at a distance from God. But not only were they expelled and put at a distance from God, but soon enough there was distance and brokenness put between the sons of Adam and Eve as murder itself came into the family. Unbelievable when you consider what God had just provided. Yet, we're all a little bit like this. 
God draws the people to himself as he establishes a pattern of sin and sacrifice uh, that they might approach God again. And he, in a sense, dwells among his people, Israel, in the tabernacle as they were even wandering. He establishes himself uh, through the, uh, the, te- uh, the temple in Jerusalem, in Zion, the light unto the nations. And ultimately, he establishes himself and reveals himself in person in the person of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 says, He dwelt among us. He made home with us. He is making home with us. And at the end of this text, we're going to get to Revelations 21, 22, because God is going a direction where all this will be gone. Every problem in this text will have its finality, where it justice will be done and it will be final, and it will possibly, for our own liking, be brutal. But so will forgiveness and grace and mercy and, and home. And every tear will be wiped from their eye. And sometimes, maybe you're even in this context this morning, and you're wondering, how is it possible that this happens? Can I encourage you before even I dip into this text that every tear will be wiped. Every brokenness of every heart will be healed. Every fear will be absolved in a faith-filled moment of God's acceptance and His love for you. And it might not make sense emotionally yet, but trust Him, the job of restoration is not done yet. Come with me, and I'm going to initially comment a lot of this text before drawing us to some conclusions, but I want you to hear these four realities that we should be looking for in the text. And the first is this, is that it speaks to a place of trusting God in a defeat He places them in. God puts Israel in a little while in the place of defeat, and then He puts them in a place of defeat. What in the world? We'll we'll dig into that. It speaks to the weight of righteous justice demonstrated against all sin, and it's brutal. It's heavy. God is sometimes an angry God for good reason. One of, it might sound weird, and I I don't think I've ever preached it again, but once upon a time I preached a sermon called God is Angry. And in Psalms it says that God's wrath burns morning to evening. And someone was like, as is natural, we try to sanitize God, and we're like, oh, I don't think that's the best sermon title, Josh. And I'm like, if you could see every injustice that is happening across the world in this one moment, you would be so ticked off that you would wipe the planet from all humanity. If I were God, I would be wrathful, but I would not be merciful. Can I tell you, the wrath of God actually should gives us a sense of security that the justice you so desperately require and need in your heart will come, even if He is holding off His hand for the moment and giving us the day of favor and salvation. This text speaks of the weight of the value God has placed on the abused woman, and it's devastating abuse. Despite her own sin, he still values her. And you will see this, and maybe you've read this and missed this. It speaks of the promise to come, a third-day victory 
that I believe is a foreshadowing of the third day victory that we find in Christ. Though defeat may seem to have come and defeat may seem to have maintained itself one day, we can be sure of this. There will be victory. There will be the resurrection. We may walk through death, but trust me in this. You can trust the Lord in this. There will be resurrection. There will be restoration. There will be reconciliation of all things, including the very cosmos itself to God, but sometimes we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes we're only walking through the death, not yet the life. But trust the journey because you can trust the Lord. Come with me. And I don't, this is messy. Verse 19, and I'm going to read quite a lot of text this morning. Um, and I encourage you to read with me if you can. It says this, verse 1, in those days there was no king in Israel. And this is important because across Judges, it says this every time to illustrate that they were not following the leadership of the Lord. There was no godly leadership and they were out of control. They had rejected leadership, whether that be the priests or the judges, and the kings had not even fully been appointed, but it's a reminder that they had rejected the lordship ultimately of, of God, and they were in a mess. And in actual fact, in the, the preceding chapters, it's, it's full of messy. There was, there was Levite priests for hire that would give you idols to serve other gods. Micah himself sacrifices to idols. And you're like, what in the world? You know, sometimes we look around even the wider church and we're like, oh dear. Justice is coming. Be careful. But so is grace. Let's keep our eye. Let's make sure we realize that we do not only have a savior, we have a king. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. A Savior might get you out of a pit, but a Lord will sometimes tell you to get back in one. We need to get this in our heart that there is a king in town. Jesus is ruling and reigning. And it doesn't matter your political or your social outlook. There is a king and we will all give account, all of us. Now, a Levite, and this is, I feel like this, this is bad. It gets worse and it gets worse and then it gets worse and then it gets worse and... It gets worse. Now, a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Just a quick note, a concubine in this context often had a level of legal recognition and relational recognition, nearly like that of a wife, but not a wife. And so you get unusual mixed language in this, in this text. But she was unfaithful to him. She, had be, uh, she left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. And after she had been there for four months, her husband went to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him, uh, in, she took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed his father-in-law. The woman's father prevailed on him to stay, so she... So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. That was the customary hospitality period, by the way. On the fourth day, they got up early and uh, he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, refresh yourself uh, with something to eat, then you can go. Now the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the woman's father said, please stay tonight, enjoy yourself. 
And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him. So he stayed there uh, that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose up, the woman, woman's father said, refresh yourself, wait till the afternoon. So the two of them ate together. This delays them, by the way, and just for practical reasons, puts them in the place of danger later. Not that it's a big thing, but note it. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father, said, now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus, they... Uh, And the day was almost gone. The servant said to his master, come let us stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, and note what's going on here because it's contrasting the people of Israel in a moment with the pagan nations that were still sort of living among them. It says, come let us stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, no, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, come let us try, reach Gibeah or or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on and as the sun set, they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. I want you to note, according to the law, they were required to take in those travelers into their home. They did not. They did ultimately, but clearly... This took a while, and so it's noted. It was required by the law that they do so, but they did not. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place where the Benjamites came uh, in from his work in the fields. And when he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going and where did you come from? He answered, we are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote area of the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I've been to Bethlehem in Judah and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We both have, uh, we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You're welcome. At my house, the old man said, let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took them into his house and fed his donkey. And after they'd washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. Pause here for a second, because at this moment, you think this guy is also, I don't know, at least there's a good guy in the story. Uh, I've put the warning out there. There's no good guys in this story. There's pretty much no good anyone's. This gets bad. They were enjoying themselves, uh, rather, while they were enjoying themselves, some of, the wicked, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came uh, into your house so we can have sex with them. And it's important to recognize that this text is echoing what happens with Sodom and Gomorrah, yet this is in Israel. 
Israel uh, lived in their own self-righteousness and they were living in a place where they thought they were better than the world, but it soon is clear in this text that they are being compared very directly to the Canaanites who served other gods. These were evil people and Israelite, the Israelites, or at least Benjaminites, in this context were no better. And in Hosea 9.9, this is the sin used as the primary example of the depravity of all of Israel, and it only gets worse for the moment. The owner of the house went out and said to them, no, and this should shock you. I don't nearly even want to read this. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. Don't do something vile. Do something else vile. Like, this is messed up. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the man would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine, who you would have thought he loved, but he doesn't love her enough. He's a coward. Just a straight-up coward. So he took his concubine and went outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. And I want you to pause for a second. Sometimes we get really offended when the Bible actually records the depravity of humanity. We, we like, this is, this is disgusting because this is disgusting. It, it should make you angry. It should make you sad. It should make you feel like these dudes needed all cut off and then killed. There should be a wrath in you that is not sure whether you're angry or you're going to cry. I, I sit in moments like this when I read the text of Scripture and I think, and we ask, God, why don't you do anything? Can I ask the confronting question back, why don't you do anything? Why don't I do anything? Because all too often I do see injustice. And I go, so it's just beyond me. Can I tell you, justice is coming. And it's not pretty. But come through the text this morning because I could have preached an easy text this morning. To be quite honest, I could have just chosen stuff. I had some really just straight up inspiring texts. You know, they're like the things that you go to Kurong, you get the little thing, you put it on your, your fridge, and you're like, yay, Christians. And you're like, could you imagine if we put up all the awkward ones like Malachi where it's like, I will spread your face in feces on your like fridge. Like God gets really ticked off with people sometimes, especially his own people. The scriptures record the depravity of humanity because at the end of the day, that's what we all are. Now, maybe we haven't gone that far, and maybe some people have breached the law and the will and the character of God more, but we're all sinners. We all deserve the righteous justice of God. And because of that, by the way, it means virtually all of us are living in places where we have been abused and mistreated. And we have allowed the brokenness of humanity to become us or to justify us. This is heavy, and it sort of gets messier. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where the master, rather, uh, 
At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where the master was staying. She fell down. She fell down on the door and lay there until daylight. What a coward. What an abuse. What tragedy that this would happen to anyone, that it is happening today. And it should break our heart and it should make us angry and it should make us nearly depressed at times that we're not yet home But trust me, he's going to take us home. Every tear will be wiped from every eye. Every heart will be healed. Every injustice will be dealt with. And when her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine fallen at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And the coward said, get up. What a coward. There is not, uh, there's not an innocent, this might sound funny, and I, there's no good people in this text, not really, and that's the point. Get up, let's go, but there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home, evidently dead. When he reached home, he took a knife and he cut her up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all Israel to the 12 tribes that being. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day of the Israelites came out of Egypt. Just imagine we must do something. So speak up. This is bad. I I do want you to feel like this is messed up. I actually want us to read texts like this at times because unless we grab the depravity of humanity, we'll never understand the grace and the mercy of God. Then all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba and from the inland, from the land of Gilead, came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. And I want you to note that statement. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their place in the assembly of God's people. 400,000 men armed with swords. The Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, lied by the way, sort of, and said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah in Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house intending to kill me. And they raped my concubine and she died. The rape is true. The rest is virtually half truths or lies. Coward. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance Became because they committed this lewd and outrageous act in Israel. Now, all you Israelites, speak up and tell me what you have decided to do. 
All the men rose up as one saying, none of us will go home. No, not one of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it in order decided by casting lots. We will take 10,000 men out of every hundred from all the tribes of Israel and a hundred from a thousand and a thousand from every 10,000 to get provisions for the army. Then when the armies arrive at Gibeah in Benjamin, Benjamin, it can give them what they deserve for this outrageous act done in Israel. So all the Israelites got together and united against the city. The tribes of Israel sent messengers throughout the tribe of Benjamin saying, what about this awful crime that was committed among you? Now turn those wicked men over Gibeah to us so we may put them to death and purge the the evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen. To their fellow Israelites, for from uh, their towns they came together at Gibeah to fight the Israelites. At once the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their town, in addition to 700 of the young men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 4,400,000 swordsmen, all of them fit for battle." The stage is set for a mess. Benjamin decides to protect the perpetrators. What? The Israelites went up to Bethel, the house of the Lord, and inquired of God. They said, who of us is to go up first against the Benjamites? The Lord replied, Judah shall go first. And so the next morning, the Israelites got up and pitched the camp near Gibeah. The Israelites went out to fight the Benjamites and took up battle positions against them at Gibeah. The Benjamites came out of Gibeah and cut down 20,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. I want you to catch this because God told them to do this. And they get cut down in their tens of thousands. This is messed up. So they encouraged themselves, it says, one another, and again took up their positions where they had been stationed themselves the first day. The Israelites again went up and they wept before the Lord until evening and inquired of the Lord, I don't know whether you've ever asked God to do something in your life and you do it and it seems not like victory, but it looks like devastating defeat. You're like, this is a righteous cause. And 22,000 men die and God put them there. What? but we're not done yet. It sort of gets worse. They encouraged themselves. And so the Israelites, verse 23, went up and they wept before the Lord from evening uh, until evening. And they inquired of the Lord and they said, shall we go up again in the fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites? And the Lord said, go up against them. Now I want you to catch this for a moment because they were implying, they're inquiring of the Lord. I mean, they've gone to Mizpah, they've gone to Bethel, they've gone to the house of the Lord. They are listening to what God is saying to them. They have a righteous and a just cause. Yet they've just lost 22,000 men 
What is going on? Then the Israelites drew near to Benjamin on the second day. This time when the Benjamites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all armed with swords. Like, we're too quick at times to think that failure in our obedience is evidence we didn't hear the Lord. There are times, and I, I, I've, ha- I've been questioned when we've made decisions both personally or even in the church, and some things just don't work, and people are like, oh, maybe you didn't hit the Lord. And I'm like, I know I did. I know the voice of the Lord. You know, as a kid, I would listen to my parents walk down the hallway, and I could tell you every time who it was. As you start to follow the Spirit of the Lord, eventually over time, you don't even need to hear His voice. You just know the way He, he walks. But sometimes even after you've heard the voice and you obey, you're like, why the devastating defeat? Maybe as we read through this text, you're aligning yourself because there's layers to this text. There's personalities and there's brokenness and there's cowardice and there's, there's oppression and there's, there's denial. And this is a mess virtually like very few other places in all of Scripture. Then the Lord said to the Israelites, the whole army, then all the Israelites, the whole army went up to Bethel and there they sat weeping before the Lord and they fasted. Can you imagine this moment where they're like, this is a just cause, God. This is the right course. You said go and we died. And we asked you again and you said go. And 40,000 men are dead by this point. You ever felt a bit dissatisfied, disillusioned? Felt like I'm just going to have to pray and fast more. It's a rough spot. And maybe you've not, I've not had anything like this happen, but I've had deep disappointment. I felt like a failure. I've been a person who has been sure I heard from the Lord, and then it was like, just a second. Isn't this supposed to work when he says go? And I go when I fall on my face or I, I, I go and I'm like, just isn't this the land of promise and there's just giants killing you all over the shop? I want to preach this text because I want us to be a people who push through and who trust the Lord even in defeat. Because the battle's not over and the story's not over. It's not over in this text, but more importantly, it's not over with the world he created. From the very brokenness of Genesis to the restoration we see in Revelation. It's awful. It's real. And it requires a repentant knee that bows even in the midst of defeat and disappointment. But I want you to catch this as well. I was reading through this text with my children. Uh, If you want to know my family and how serious we are, we read some bad stuff. Ten-year-old daughter, 12-year-old daughter, and this is is bad. It's it's men abusing women, cowardice, men making excuses. The woman is unfair. I mean, there is not a 
good person and no amount, by the way, of unfaithfulness is any excuse for the abuses that happened to her. And we know this because God decides the value of the one woman is 40,000 men. See, the value God places on the abused, on the sinner themselves, is so insurmountable that it seems outrageous that 40,000 men would die to show God's anger ultimately against one or a group of small men. When people ask you whether God values women, you, need, you simply need to say he values the life of a woman like he values 40,000 men who is willing to let die to seek justice for her. This is scary because this is the place of value and righteousness and wrath and mercy and grace. And it's, it's built into one narrative where you're like, where do I pull this bit apart and where do I lean into this part? It's, it's messy stuff. Because the world we live in is messy. And yet that's exactly what he did for us. We're like, how, how valuable is that person out there that is walking away from God, that is unfaithful to the things that God has called them to? That person out there has the value that God has placed upon them, and that's himself. That he would walk in our muck and our mess and our disobedience and our disgusting depravity and pay the price for us. That those who would repent would come back to him, but we're not done yet. Because the weight of value that God has placed upon this woman, despite her sin, entirely ignoring her sin, by the way, is 40,000 dead men of Israel that were they were living out a just and righteous cause. It says, And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant of God was with them, with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. They asked, Shall we go up against, uh, again to fight the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites, or not? Can you imagine the anguish in this moment when you've prayed and you've fasted, and you've brought all the offerings, and the righteous cause is true, and you have heard the word of the Lord not just once, but twice clearly, and it's all a devastating failure. And you ask a third time, surely this is enough pain. Surely, surely shall... Like these are these are us. This is Israelite. Shall we go up against them enough? And the Lord responds, Go tomorrow, and I will give you, give them into your hands. You know, before I even move on, I think we have to recognize the mess of the world we live in the level to which the only thing, I want you to hear this from the justice side, the only thing that could have stepped aside all of this judgment and justice and pain was repentance. There was justification. There was 
excuses, but it was repentance that could have changed this whole story. You know, we sometimes think that we're much more enlightened. Like, we're like, hey, that never happened in our society. Happens every day. It might, happen, might not happen as explicitly, but do you know, I, a number of years ago, I was asked to actually speak at Consent Week at, Australia, uh, at ANU. And that's pretty much like walk into the fire. Anusa Consent Week, it's pretty much about how you can have sex, lots of it, in all different ways. That's, I, I looked at all the material and that's all it was about. How you can express your sexuality in 50 different ways and here's 25 different things to express it. And it dawned on me eventually as I was praying and considering through this, and I want you to hear this, that though they talked of consent with their mouth, they can, we have constructed a culture in this area which has taken it away in reality. It doesn't say you can say yes or no. In actual fact, it says you can say yes or no, but if you, if you do, you're a prude. It creates a culture which actually is like the men who surround the house and say, give them to me. Let me use that other person. Let me fulfill my desires. Let me outwork the things that just my flesh is driving for. I am feeling pretty sarcastic and a bit ticked off because sometimes we think that's their story when in actual fact this is our story. Sure, we put some glisten on it. We share pretty pictures on Instagram that make the world look faker than it really is. And then we post a hashtag about how we're trying to keep it real. So people, are, you ever thought that people are idiots? Like, like, hey, body positive imagery, here's a picture of me, skinny ass model in a bikini, and you're like, are you? I think you've missed the value issue going on here. We're not that different from this text in the world still today. Maybe the story is a little bit different, but can I tell you the justice is the same. The pain is the same. The righteousness is the same. But most importantly, the same God that we serve is the same. And on the third day, he wins. And I don't think this is a mistake. I don't think God was like, hey, I just want to let them die for two days And then on the third day, they do the killing. They get the victory. I think without a doubt that this is actually pointing us. It's a foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus would come and he would pay the price for one day and he would pay the price for another day. But on the third day, he would rise and he would make a spectacle of all that which has denied him. He would make a spectacle of the kingdom of darkness and he would promise that one day he would return, not just to restore all things, but to call all people to account. And I want us to feel the, the justice and the righteousness and the brokenness of this because when you walk into your workplace, you're going to see this. You're going to feel it in your own life when you feel like being the rebel. And I want you, when you feel like being the rebel, remember, without repentance, there's justice and righteousness. And don't, don't let us not talk about justice and social justice even if we don't talk about repentance and righteousness. But can I encourage you? Don't talk about righteousness if you don't give the opportunity for repentance. Righteousness without the opportunity for repentance is just condemnation. Jesus has provided the way, and he says he didn't come to condemn the world, but it says in 17 and 18 that they condemn themselves anyway. This is not always the funnest passage, 
But I want us to see that God is at work in this. It's speaking of living through defeat that you, even though God placed you in, with faithfulness. It's speaking of the weight that God places upon the individual that doesn't even make sense because he does this in Christ. It's speaking of the weight of justice that will and must be demonstrated against unrepentant sin. But it speaks ultimately and most importantly of the promise that's to come, a third day victory. And the Lord responded, go for tomorrow, I will give you them into your hands. Then Israel set up an ambush around Gibeah and they went up against them, against the Benjamites on the third day and took positions up against Gibeah as they come before. And I don't even need to really go into it, but it says this, verse 33, all the men of Israel moved from their places and took up Baal, uh, at Baal Tamar an Israelite ambush charged out of its place on the west of Gibeah. And it says in verse, uh, it says in, what are we, verse 36, and the Benjaminites saw that they had been beaten. This is a messy text. This is the one normally people are like, ooh, that's gross, that's awful. I, I feel like ripping this out of my Bible. But can I tell you this tells us something about God's righteous nature. It tells us something about the depravity of humanity that is more present than we like to think. It tells us something about the justice nature of God who is willing to let 40,000 men die to demonstrate His wrath and His value. This is heavy stuff. And I want us to grab this because there's going to be times when maybe you're in this place and we're going to get to the Jesus fulfillment of this, of course. And you're like, I prayed and I failed. And if you're in a really caro Pentecostal circle, somebody will be like, that's evidence you didn't hear. And so you don't just feel like a failure, you feel condemned. Like, not only do I think I suck, everybody else seems to think I suck. It's a, it's a hard place to be when you know, but you don't. Like it's, they hear the Lord and God leads them through defeat. But I want you to hear that the game is not over. The, the story for you is not over because whilst the text speaks of this in the context of Israel in Christ, we follow a Savior who understands our struggles and He walked in obedience who heard the word of the Lord, who knew the will of his father and felt a pain and a devastation that was not his to bear in terms of his sin because he was sinless. Yet he walked through it. He is like the rest of Israel in this moment that have a righteous cause but bear the weight of the pain. In Christ, we can experience the value He places on the sinner, each one of us, on the abused and the oppressed. We are sometimes the abused, but we are always the sinner. Always. It says this in Romans 5, verse 6, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You don't mind just jumping up, Bethany. See, in Christ we know that He has both borne the weight of righteous justice as He took our place. 40,000 men demonstrate the love of God and the value on one woman, and it's, it's disgusting. I mean, you read that stuff and you're like, what sort of sick world do we live in? I don't, I don't blame you if you read over this text because it's, it's messed up. But I do want you to hear that when someone says, does God value women? 40,000 men. 40,000 men, he does. That when we're like, is this too high a price to pay? He's like, look at the, look at the marks in my own hands. It's not too high a price to pay. Because whilst we were still sinners, He loved us. He didn't love us. He didn't love you because you're good enough. He doesn't love you this morning because you're faithful. He loves you because He is loving. As a matter of fact, maybe you look at yourself and I'm like the adulterer that has run away and He's like, no, 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 come back to me. I've already paid the price. You don't need to walk the line of, unsin- uh, of sinfulness and brokenness and unrepentance. Come back to the Father. It says this in verse 9 of Romans 5, in Christ, it doesn't say that, that's my words. It says this in verse 9, since we have been justified by blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? See, the hardest thing for most of us to realize is by and large, at the end of the day, you may have experienced abuse. And I want you to know that the heart of God is breaking for you. It's breaking so bad that He's so angry every day trying to withhold His justice because if He didn't withhold it, He would not just wipe away the abuser, He would wipe away us all. It's messed up. But He got involved in our mess. He didn't sit at a distance and look and go, hey, you guys, you're awful. The perfect one of heaven that has all glory and righteousness and power became like one of us. Like us. It says in Philippians 2, he became nothing. Nothing. God places so much value on the nothings that he walks as a nothing. That the nothings might become someone's in Christ. This is messed up. Life is messed up. So walk through the defeat. Knowing that God, that in Christ has already paid the price. That we are going to come home. That one day the story will be completed and you will look back and go, I don't understand it still, but He is faithful. In Christ we know the promise to come. The firstborn from the dead raised to life has overcome and in him lies the guarantee of our victory in him. As the third day came for for Israel and as the third day came for Jesus, can I tell you the third day is coming for you and I? Because we may be awaiting the resurrection, but it's promised. 
You may be walking in a place where you are like, I just feel like I'm walking in all sorts of death. And he's like, don't worry. Third day's coming. Resurrection's coming. Though our very bodies may be wasting away, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, there will be a day when we will be able to say, and by the way, I I, I stress this because we misquote this all the time, then we will be able to say, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? Because a lot of us are still walking through the sting of death. Christ has overcome the sting of death. We will overcome the sting of death, but sometimes we feel like we're walking right through the guts of it right now. But have this in your heart that it's worth walking through the defeat even when God placed you there so you can taste the glorious victory found in His presence. He is the firstborn. And so it says, for if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ? You know, I don't know where you are this morning, and I'm not very good at altar calls or that sort of business. But if you're living in death... If you're living as the sinner, then repent. And to repent simply means to go, God, I am, I am not where I'm supposed to be. I'm living according to my own will and my own way. And I'm going to bow my knee. I am the abuser. I am the sinner. And you might have all sorts of excuses. We all do. But at the end of the day, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It includes me. And when we repent, when we bow our knee and say, God, I need you so bad, He he promises us third day victory. And He promises us this, that we shall come home. At the very beginning of Scripture, it talks of God walking in perfect communion in the garden. That they heard, the, they heard the voice of the Lord, that they heard the Lord in the garden. They knew what it was to be with God. They knew what it was to be in perfect communion with one another. And yet sin has devastated this place. But He promises us this, that He will bring us home. That we can make home. In a world of devastation and injustice, can I tell you, we should be passionate about justice and the church itself should look like justice. I can't expect the world to look like justice. But our community, this should look like justice. I can't expect the world to be a place of mercy. I can't. That would be legalism. But I can expect the community to be a place of mercy and faith, and grace. This is the place where the unfaithful woman, where the unfaithful man comes home to find a family that loves and adores them. Because we're all sinners who have been made sons and daughters. And it says in the vision of the end, 
as home is restored, God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And maybe you've got tears. Maybe you lay on your bed at night and you're like, I can't do this. I've done it. I've done it way more than once. I've done it in the last couple of years. I've felt so, so far away. But he'll wipe, he'll wipe away all those tears. You will know a joy that you have not known before, even if it means right now you have to walk through defeat. And so God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. You know, there's, there's so much mess in here because there's so much mess out there. And there's so much mess in here. But in the same sense that there's so much mess in here, the hope of glory is found through what this tells us, and that is Jesus. There will be no more pain for the former things are passed away. And he sat, he who sat on the throne said, he will say, behold, I make all things new. Now, I don't, I don't know where you are, but I know this, that the death you're walking through is not final. It may be fatal but it's not final. I know this much that though God calls us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we do not serve a God who does not understand us, but understands us in our trials and tribulations. Who He is the one that wept at death, that felt the brokenness of trial and tribulation. And so today, wherever you are, I just want you to place this all before God, just as the team gets up. You know, this morning, I don't think it's coincidence that they said, they sung about the day when the hymn of heaven that we sing right now becomes the only reality we know. And, you know, you could sing songs this morning. You could even sing, Lord, pour it out, pour out your spirit. But if you just sing it but don't faith it, then it's just words. It's just empty. There are only words if you don't actually faith it. You don't mean it. So we're going to sing just lastly. And I'm not going to call you to come out the front for prayer. But if you, if you do need prayer... We are community, and we should be a community of justice, mercy, righteousness, truth, love, godliness, a place of safety in a world where it is messed up, and we will sin against each other sometimes because we're a broken people being made well. But can I tell you, let's walk together through this because God is faithful to us, amen. He is faithful as a God to His Word, and we can trust Him that every tear will be wiped away. Every frustration you've, you're, you've got right in your heart or in your life right now, you will find victory on the third day. And so right now, maybe as we just stand. It might sound funny, but actually, 
I want you to take the frustration and the pain. I want you to take the sin maybe that you need to repent of. I want you to take it in a sense symbolically this morning. Just where you are, it's just you and God. I've got my, I've got my hand here. I've got some things I still need to give God. So if you've got, and I just want you to give it to Him. Just, just give it. Let go. Let go of it. Give it over this morning.